Hello, friends, and welcome to Ill Natured. This is Michelle. And I'm Alyssa. interesting tale for us today today's story is something else it's a lot it's great it's crazy it's crazy it's crazy about it and i'm really jazzed to hear it well when we decided we were going to do a podcast you know i told you i was going to research a bunch of different cases just do like super 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 just like light research and compile a list so we had people to choose from exactly well these two were on that list back in february before we even started right 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 and so i thought this case was just it's like just crazy how it could happen to just like have two different brothers or two brothers, you know, of the same family involved in two totally different, completely yeah. different true crime case. Um, just that's different. I thought it was a couple when Alyssa first told me. Stephen, Stephen and Carrie, Carrie Strainer, Stainer, Stainer. Stainer. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but they're brothers. Yeah, right? one brother was a victim of a true co- crime case. You could say. Um, and the other brother would turn out to be an insanely horrible monster. Nice. Um, there's actually a Hulu documentary on this um, oh. this family that was released this year. I think in March or April. Maybe May. It was released um, not too long ago. Um, and I, of course when I decided I was going to do this case it was released like within like two weeks yeah. and so i watched the documentary while i was doing my research for this case um so it. oh it's real That's good i'm watching tonight yes it's real good um and there's also a mini series on the stainer family it doesn't have anything to do with what happens with carrie later on but steven um, had a mini series in 1989 and it was titled <clears throat> i know my first name is steven um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but buckle up, buttercup, because <laughs> this is a story that is going to be so unbelievable. You're not going to believe it's actually happened. Yeah. Okay. So. Get after it. I'm about to, girl. The suspense. I know, I know. So <coughs> Delbert, or Del, as he goes by. And Kay Stainer lived in Merced, California, and had five children, two boys and three girls. The neighborhood they lived in was across the street from the Yosemite National Park entrance. Oh. Yeah. And so, as far as the neighborhood, there was, like, a ton of kids, and all the kids played outside. It was a friendly place. They trusted it. You know, it was, like, a good area. Right. And Kay described Stephen as a good kid who always wanted to help people. In the first episode of the Hulu documentary, um, it was called Captive Audience. How many episodes? <clears throat> Only three. Good. Um, Kay said that they always told 
all their children to respect their elders, which she says felt like got Stephen in trouble mm. later on. Yeah. Possibly being a factor into making him so compliant during his captivity. Oh. On the day of Stephen's abduction, December 4th, 1972, he was just a seven-year-old boy walking home from school. Kay was actually supposed to be picking him up, but she got held up at the parts store getting something for Dale that he wanted or needed. A few, yeah. Oh. A few. The survivor's guilt. I know. Whatever. A few blocks from home, Stephen was stopped by a man who was passing out flyers. And he asked Stephen if his mother would like to donate to a church cause, and Stephen said she probably would, so the man offered to give him a ride home. Mm-mm. A white Buick pulls up beside the man, and the man introduced the driver as Reverend Parnell. Stephen got into the back of the car thinking he was getting a ride home. But as they drove past the road he lived on in the Hulu documentary, it says Parnell told him that he was going to call his parents to see if he could spend the night. And he drove him to a cabin 30 miles away in Kathy's Valley. Mm. Then the next night, he again said that his parents told him that Stephen could stay with him. Kenneth Parnell left the cabin for a little bit, and when he came back, he told Stephen that he had been to the courthouse and got possession over him. What? Yes. What? He, okay. What? Yeah. So he like and he this kid's seven. Seven. He gets him off the street, takes him to the cabin in like thirty miles away from his home. He keeps him for a few nights, comes back in, says, I went to the courthouse and now I have possession over you. He told Stephen that he was now his child. And a week later, Parnell wanted him to start calling him dad and told him his new name was going to be Dennis Gregory Parnell. So he kept his same middle name because it was Stephen Gregory Stainer. Wow. But he changed it to Dennis Gregory Parnell. And in a few sources I read, soon after his abduction, Parnell began sexually assaulting and raping Stephen. What? Oh, God. Stephen, of course, begged to go home, but Parnell slowly brainwashed him into thinking that his parents didn't want him. And at the time of Stephen's abduction, Parnell and his accomplice, Irvin Murphy, worked in Yosemite National Park. So they were, like, right there. That is crazy. Yeah. So, despite family efforts, Stephen's case kind of faded in and out of the media, and they still had no idea where he was at. Police never stopped completely working on his case, and they hoped to find him and bring him home one day. They followed any leads that came their way and even consulted with some psychics. But, of course, that led to nothing. Right. Um, The family struggled, which, of course, is natural. It was said that Dale was kind of bitter and angry and was always emotional about the event because it was his baby boy. Right. And... Kay was left to be the strong one for the family. She always had faith that Stephen would come home one day, though. And it was said Carrie, the oldest brother, was having a hard time with the disappearance as well. And a friend said, quote, he loved his brother. You know, hung out with him, played with him, end quote. But like I said, we'll get into Carrie later on. Yeah. Can't imagine what this would do to you as a parent. Your child just vanishes into thin air. I know. 
yikes, or as a family unit, you know, that's going to have some lasting effects on everything. Oh, yeah. Your whole way of life. Oh, yeah. Well, all right. There's so many twists and turns in the story. It's like bananas. So, over the next several years, Parnell enrolled Stephen, or Dennis, into several different schools around California. And presented themselves as father and son. So, Parnell wasn't even trying to hide Stephen. Like, he was in plain sight the entire time. But as... It was like, oh, they're father and son. This is Dennis. Like, this is my son. No one knew he was an abducted child or that he endured terrible horror at home when he was with Parnell. In school, Stephen had a lot of friends and played sports. He was a normal kid at school, you know. Really? Yeah, like, he tried to enjoy his life outside of home. Friends of Steven said Parnell let Steven do whatever he wanted to. Like, he was able to drink from early on and, like, smoke uh, cigarettes if he wanted to. And um, I think he eventually got in, like, a dog or something. Mm. Um, from cigarettes to a dog. Yeah, there was all... Cigarettes and alcohol. <laughs> That's all, all the above. Um, but they also noticed that Steven wasn't really well off. Like, he only had a couple of pair of pants and a few shirts and... That he would be teased at school for having, like, dirty nails and that his shoes had holes and that he didn't even have socks to wear. No one ever wanted to go to his house. Um, They would pick him up from a hill away from Parnell's yard. And some of his friend's parents even told them to stay away from Stephen's house because they didn't like Kenneth Parnell. Like, he was just creepy. Yeah. And I'll show you a picture because... Yikes. Um, one vacation, Stephen rode to a nearby friend's house to show this friend a bike that he had just gotten for Christmas. And as they were talking, she asked how his vacation had been and if he had gotten to see any other family members or if he had gotten to see his mom or anything. Well, Stephen replied, quote, my mom doesn't even know I exist, end quote. Mm. So... That's just... Because probably at this point, he's probably presumed dead by his family. You know, they get... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Whoa. This guy. Y'all. Alyssa just showed me a picture of Parnell. That is very, very disturbing. That's a disturbing-looking fella. Oh, yeah. Creepy. So creepy. Anyways. Wow. That that just makes the story real. You see a picture and it makes this even worse. Yeah, that's why you need to follow the Instagram so you can see pictures associated with the case. I look on Facebook. Or Facebook, I guess I post them on there. I forget about Instagram. I don't have time to be looking at more than one social media platform. You heard me. Well, this friend said Stephen's face was as serious as ever. Like he wasn't. Like it wasn't like a joke. Like he's yeah. serious. Yeah. Um, and another time he was out friends and they had been drinking beer and when they were walking home, all of a sudden Stephen just kinda got super emotional and started crying. What? Yeah, and they like when they were asking him like what was wrong, he said he just wanted to go home and his friends were like, Dude, we're on the way home, like don't just calm down, like we'll we're right around yeah. the corner, like we'll just go take you home. And Stephen replied by saying, Quote, No, I wanna go to I want to go home to my real home, end quote. And another another friend recalls a particular way that he would walk. And she said it was strange because he would walk extremely stiff. 
and then said later on after hearing everything came out she realized it was due to the abuse um she didn't specify if it was like sexual or physical abuse but it was the pain that he had to deal with is why he had to walk no. super stiff oh, i was thinking God. sexual abuse yes oh that's horrible and this creepy goblin of a man <laughs> Yeah. Poor child and his family. They're not even that far from where his family lives, right? Well, and <laughs> this particular place, I want to say, was maybe 200 miles away. Okay, so, yeah. Like, they moved all over California. But Parnell basically tried to put on the cool and loving father to the public, but behind closed doors, Stephen was scared of Parnell. Um... So, in turn, he was really scared to go into details with anyone about his abduction. And he was brainwashed, like I said, into believing that his parents didn't want him. So, like, if he told people, where would he go? Like, his his parents gave him up. That's right. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah. He also never told anyone about the abuse that happened behind closed doors, even after they find all of this stuff out. Um, He was even hesitant to talk about it to police or anything. Mm. Parnell manipulated a seven-year-old boy into submission, which in turn forced Stephen to learn to deal with his life, and he did begin to enjoy life as Dennis, like I said, aside from the abuse he received Parnell. He liked his friends in school and sports, and he put on a strong face as a coping mechanism to deal with his life. Mm. Eventually, Parnell thought Stephen was getting too close to others in Comp G, which is the place that he lived with the other friends that mm-hmm. we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. So he moved them to Point Arena out in the middle of nowhere in a one-bedroom shack. Ugh. This was when Stephen was around 13 or 14 years old. Um, So he went from living in, like, town with friends and going to yeah, school. Yeah, with like a... a- Functional family of five kids, right? Seven, I guess. Well, I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about with Parnell to begin with. Like, they were living in town. And yeah. he went to school and he had friends. And he lived in, like, a two- or three-bedroom house or something. But he gets too close to others out in Comp G, so he moves to a oh. one-bedroom shack. <clears throat> um, this was also the time Parnell realized that... Stephen was getting too old to be sexually abused anymore, and that he wanted another young boy to kidnap. No. Stop yeah. it. And he wanted Stephen's help. No. But Stephen never did help lure any boys. He always said that he sabotaged the kidnappings on purpose. Good for him. Um, also, I'm going to throw it back a little bit. There was one source I read where there was a period of time, about a year and a half, where Parnell had a woman named Barbara Matthews living with him and Stephen. And Stephen later recalled how Barbara and Parnell had sexually assaulted and raped him on several occasions at only nine years old. Um, In 1975, Parnell asked Barbara to attempt to lure another young boy into Parnell's car, but was unsuccessful. What did she look like? I don't know. I hadn't even looked Uh. at the picture of her. Um, Unfortunately, that didn't stop Parnell from finding another boy to take, though. This is when um, Stephen is 14 years old. Parnell hires a friend of Stephen's named Randall Poorman to help him lure five-year-old Timmy White. 
Parnell had offered him weed and alcohol to grab the little boy and throw him into his car, which is what he did. No. This was on Valentine's Day in 1980. He was in Ukiah and had gone missing while walking home from school, just like Stephen did. Now, I'm sorry, but I have to say it. Like, what, what is going on in this kid's brain to kidnap another child yeah. for somebody like why are you not asking questions right you're just taking something's wrong with this guy sorry something's wrong with him like no something's wrong with him squeeze Mm-mm. me Mm-mm. yeah he wrong for that but no something's wrong something's wrong with his head yeah thankfully though steven said he knew that he did not want what happened to him to happen to timmy so he hatched a plan to escape with Timmy. Nice. March 1st of 1980, Parnell left for his night shift security job and Stephen got Timmy and left. The night that Stephen decided that he wanted to leave was a rainy, stormy, dark, messy night, but they left on foot anyways. The road from Ukiah to Point Arena was long, like super long, like 30 or 40 miles long. Oh, wow. And it's, like, raining, it's dark, it's messy, yeah. and he's carrying this five-year-old boy. They got about a mile down the road or so when a man in a truck stopped and picked them up. And when they got into Ukiah, so the, they hitchhiked, thank goodness, you know, they didn't Somebody have to, good yeah, they didn't have to walk. Yeah. Um, when they got into Ukiah, they tried to search for Timmy's home, but couldn't find it, so they went to the police station. When they walked in, the police were obviously ecstatic to see Timmy. Like, one officer ran up to him, picked him up, and said, we have been looking for you for a long time. I'm gonna cry. (laughs) And then they asked Stephen who he was, and he said, quote, I know my first name is Stephen, end quote. At 3 a.m. that morning, an officer went to the Stainer home to tell them they had found Stephen, but when Kay answered the door, she initially thought it was about Carrie, the older brother. Mm -hmm. When he said it was about Stephen, she immediately thought the worst and broke Dale down. Dale came out and asked where he was and if he was okay, and the officer said that physically he was fine and he was at the police station, but they couldn't go get him quite yet because he needed to go through some police investigation first and some interviews from what he had been through to help build a case and, you know, get Can all the information. imagine that mom answering the door? And she's thinking they're going to say, we found remains, we think it's him. Exactly. He's dead, but then she finds out that he's alive. Like, so first of all, she says in the Hulu doc that she's like... The whole time, I thought he was going to be okay. I always said, we believe he's alive. We 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 thought somebody just wanted a child. We thought he was safe. We thought he was alive. Yeah. But as soon as this cop gets to my door and knocks on it and says it's about Steven, I immediately thought it was the worst thing. I had decided in that moment yep. that it was bad. He was gone. Mm-hmm. Well, it had been was seven years. It had been seven years. Wow. The family first saw what Stephen looked like at 14 years old on a TV interview. Like I said, it had been seven whole years, and they saw him on the news. Before they saw him in person? Yeah. Stop. Mm -hmm. Stop, stop, stop. In the interview, he walks in with Timmy on his back, and there's, like, a picture I'll post of it, like, He's walking in the room and he kind of like sits down and like throws Timmy. Not so throws he was him, still like, he he was still normal. This guy didn't break him. Doesn't sound like. Well, 
Oh, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll just get into jumping it. Jumping ahead. Trying to do fairy tale happy ending here. Yeah. Trying to well, do it. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's not really good that comes out of any of this. But anyways. Um, and they're like in a conference room or something. And Timmy's parents were there. Um, he wasn't allowed to talk about his experience with Parnell for the interview. But he did tell them how he hitchhiked to Ukiah. And how he got Timmy to the police department. And he was saying, like, how much he had, like, started to like Timmy. And, you know, he just, you know, wanted to help him out. The next day, March 2nd, Stephen got to go home to his parents for the first time in seven years. This was a little after midnight, but there was a ton of reporters in the yard waiting for Stephen to get home and record his homecoming with his family. These reporters was ruthless. Oh, you You just wait. You just wait. Uh The next morning, Stephen and his parents and an officer went in front of the press. He said he never forgot his parents, and when asked about anything to do with Parnell, the officer would tell him to not answer. Later, his mom said all the media attention kind of scared Stephen, and from then on out, the press was nonstop. They tried to get interviews from whoever they could, whenever they could, and it really took a toll on Stephen's healing process and the family's, like, healing process and then just getting back to normal. Yep. All for a story. Sorry, have y'all need not? This is a great story. But, um, yeah, that sucks when they do that. News, News folk. Well... Stephen was eventually able to start school again, but news crews would be outside of his school. Uh Yes! And Kay eventually had to tell everyone that, like, she didn't want him being interviewed at school or in class. And it was about a week after coming home that um, all this was happening, like, when he started school and all the reporters and stuff. And that caused other students to bully him or be jealous of him because they thought he was getting special attention. Mm -hmm. Oh, little jerks. Oh, you just wait. Golly, you just wait. I can't say that enough. Another hard thing for Stephen and his family was them having to adjust to the fact that Stephen had grown up. Like, he wasn't a seven-year-old boy anymore. And the person that struggled the most with with it was Dale. In the interview I mentioned earlier, Dell was standing by Stephen the entire time with his arm wrapped around him or, like, interlocked into Stephen's arm. Like, for Dale, it's like, I got my son back. I'm not, I'm not letting go. But Stephen's like, you're literally smothering me. Oh. So. That's not good. I know. But in another thing. I would thing, never want to let him go neither. Oh, I can't blame. I can't mm-hmm. blame him. No. Another thing that Dale had an issue with was therapists. So, even though Stephen would have benefited from one tremendously and, like, really probably shouldn't have went, he was never really given the opportunity to move past what happened to him because, like I said, Dale didn't like therapists or psychiatrists. Mm, That sucks. Stephen would also start to talk about things that he had done as Dennis, like his friends or sports things and stuff like that. And people didn't really know how to take it or react to it. Like, yeah. some people thought he missed his life as Dennis. Not the abuse, necessarily, but just, like, his life. But his sister said she didn't really notice Dennis, except once when he was zoned into the TV, and their mom shouted Dennis, and he turned his head. Mm. But, like, to him, that's his life, you know? Like, he that spent sucks. seven years as Dennis. Yeah. 
Carrie, his older his older brother, was also jealous of the attention Stephen got. It seemed like, but like I said, he's a whole other story, and we're gonna kind of try to keep it tight lived about him until later on. Okay, let's see if we can do it. <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to. Kay later says that she regrets allowing the media around, and she wishes she would have just shown everyone that he was home. Physically, he was safe, but they were going to disappear, and they were going to work on his healing process. Hindsight, man. Oh, it's 2020. So, I do want to take a step back and tell you a little about Kenneth Parnell, because he's just... Stephen wasn't his first. He wasn't his last. So, he was born during the Great Depression, it was said, and grew up mostly without a father... He was in and out of mental institutions and juvenile halls throughout his childhood. In 1951, he was arrested for the first time for sodomizing a young boy and impersonating a police officer, which is how he lured the young boy. He was sentenced to four years in prison. And in an interview in 2000 that he gives later on, Parnell says he kidnapped the boy in 1951 because his wife was pregnant and he had to find another outlet. Stop it. Stop it. He did not say it out loud. How sick. Gross. Then, of course, in 1972, he abducts Stephen, sexually assaults him the entire time. And then in 1980, he abducted Timmy, planned on sexually assaulting him. Please tell me, this guy went away for, like, ever. Oh, just wait. When he was arrested after the boys escaped is when the police found out that he had already been arrested once for the other child's sex crime. And in the beginning, Stephen denied any sexual encounters with Parnell. He was embarrassed. And during the investigation, police found Polaroid pictures of a young Stephen naked in Parnell's house. And so that's when he kind of had to kind of confess to the, you know, and tell his real story. I hope he had somebody that was understanding and easy with them. Um, but as soon as the media caught wind of that, they harassed the family, wanting Stephen to talk about his experience and tell everyone the extent of the abuse with Parnell. So they were like starting to harass him, and media the media was like tracking him down and wanting him to talk about his sexual abuse in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To the public, where anybody could hear it. Uh-uh. And Stephen and his family were very adamant they were not going to talk about it. And then June 8th, 1981, Kenneth Parnell was sentenced to seven years Shut up. Stop for it. kidnapping Timmy White. Then December 1st of 1981, that same year, is when the trial for kidnapping Stephen began. Stephen was the first witness, and Stephen didn't want to testify to begin with, like, at all. Um, and he tried to fight it, but without his testimony, the case wouldn't be as strong, and they just Dang, thought they would be that, able to do better with yeah, Steven. So he did end up sure. testifying. Good for him. Um, he does confirm that he endured sodomy and oral acts that was from Parnell. Ugh. He, Parnell, excuse me, was sentenced to another seven years, but since it was his second offense, he only had to serve a third of Stop that. Stop it. So, like, 20 months. I thought you were going to say more. He has served 20 months for Stevens. 
abuse seven years long. They never charged Parnell with several with the several sexual assaults on Stephen because it was either out of their jurisdiction or had passed the statute of limitations. Stop it. So they couldn't charge him with it. That is this is getting worse for about the minute. I know, and it's gonna get worse, worse, Where worse, is this, worse. California? Merced, yeah. Merced, California. Well, all over California, but yeah. Irvin Murphy and Randall Poorman were the accomplices, so they only got convicted of lesser charges. And both claimed they had never known Stephen was being sexually assaulted. Oh, I forgot that there was a, the car that pulled up talking about donating money. Yeah. There were two more people involved in one, that. One, but yeah. Oh, there was only one in that car. Yeah, Parnell was the driver. Me. That's right. Um, and Barbara Matthias was never arrested. Parnell was eventually charged with attempting to purchase a child and attempted child molestation in 2004, and he was sentenced to 25 to life. He died in jail in 2008 at the age of 76 years old. Woohoo! Goodbye. So that was the end of Kenneth Parnell, but not the end of Stephen's story. After the trial, it got worse for Stephen at school. Other students would call him really awful homophobic slurs, and I'm sure you could guess the one I'm thinking of. Come on. Having all the information out there was really hard for Stephen. Like, he couldn't help his abuse. Right. How do you. He must have been a strong guy, though. He was. He was. He really was. Um,. But he did eventually drop out of school. He did have a hard time at the beginning, I believe. Yeah. At home, um, he had different lifestyle than his parents. Did, you know, they didn't really like him smoking pot and drinking all the time. Yeah. And Kay says that it was girl after girl, you know, you know, all that. They just weren't that kind of person, I guess, that drank casually and smoked. Right, and I mean, their kid drops out of school, but he was, you know, his hard time adjusting to a life where he yeah. could be able to do anything. Like, yeah, partner let him do whatever he wanted to, and then he had to go back to like a structured, structured. house and for a teenager. Puberty is fourteen. Yikes! And then he's getting like freaking harassed at school about his abuse and followed it's, by the media. To think about and, anything like this on top of being a teenager, yikes! It was seriously for, for folks without, you know. That's right. So, um, but he did eventually meet a girl named Jody, and he met her through a friend of hers at his work. She was 16 and he was 19. They eventually got pregnant with their daughter, Ashley, and then got married, and then she got pregnant again with their son, Stephen Jr. Oh, this is Stephen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, yes. Nice. This is, you know, he dropped out of school, but he's kind of recovering. He meets this girl. He's got two kids now. He's married. And it's early 1989. I think he's 23, 24 around this time. All right, Stephen. Out there living. Mm-hmm. Good. The miniseries, I know, My First Name is Stephen, was being produced. And Stephen was super excited about it because it was a chance for him to support his family for a while. Um, because I think he was, like, he was getting ready to... um start a career but he hadn't been able to start it quite yet Mm -hmm. um 
Kay wasn't too sure about it, though, because she didn't want his story sensationalized, but Stephen went along with it anyways and was pretty happy about how it turned out. Well, Stephen has to make the decision. Exactly. You know, like, that's his to make. That's his story to get off his chest. Once and for all, shut everybody up so they know the facts, and it's from him, so it doesn't get twisted. And later on, he says that it really was kind of like therapy for him, being able to talk about it. So, um... During this time, Stephen was interested, like I said, in pursuing a career in law enforcement. So, during the miniseries, in one of the scenes, there's, like, um, his homecoming scene. And the Corin Namek, I think, is the guy who plays Stephen in the miniseries. Mm-hmm. He's being escorted by police. And Stephen's actually one of the police that's escorting his oh, younger yeah. self yeah, to his house. In the movie. Mm-hmm. He was going to a local college taking classes for his degree. And the only thing Stephen really didn't like about the show was he said it portrayed him kind of like as a brat and rude to his parents, which he says he never was. And Kay says that she's seen it once and wasn't really impressed because it depicted the family differently than they really were. Mm. She says in one of her interviews for the Hulu doc that it was, quote, a little twisted and ridiculous. I know it pissed Delbert off something fierce, end quote. She brings up... I forgot about Delbert. Oh, Delbert. She brings up the example in the show that that it was depicted the family was more financially troubled than they really were. One Christmas in the show, there was a scene where actor Kate and Bill were discussing how they only had like $40 to spend in Christmas. Mm. So in Kate's defense, I wouldn't want anyone to think that we were like super struggling that bad, even if it were true. Like that's... Right. You know, you don't... it's kind of want your business aired like that. Right, like, some people are rude, and some people judge, and, like, are very nice about things like that. So, I wouldn't that one that spread, even if it were true. Right. Don't put it on TV for a good story. That's... But, like, like exactly what you just said, producers knew it was going to be more dramatic and would get them more Okay. Mm-hmm. It would make a better story. Yep. So, the miniseries aired on May 22nd and 23rd of 1989. Nearly 40 million people tuned in to watch the show on NBC. Yeah. So, this made it the highest. Yes, the highest rated miniseries on NBC in five whole years. Wow. That was a big deal. And it was insane that there were so many people watching it at the same time. I bet my mom was watching it. For sure. One of the actors from the Hulu Dog says it was like the Super Bowl. Like, to have that many people watching something yeah, at the same time. that is nuts. During this time, though, especially the topic of sexual abuse, especially towards children, was super taboo. Yeah. And, like, no one talked about it. But this miniseries did spark a lot of attention because of what Stephen went through in his childhood with Parnell. Mm-hmm. And he was able to talk about it and explain and try and make it easier for people to talk about right. to stop it yeah jody said the show in his interviews and talking about his experience was the therapy that he needed that is what helped him through what happened to him and stephen thought the talk about pedophiles and child sex crimes was beneficial and thought the miniseries would help normalize talking about yeah. it and so he felt like he went through this horrible thing but at least there was some sort of good, he thought, coming out of That's it. That's right. And talking about it, you can't prevent something unless everyone is educated and kids know the details of what can happen 
if you get into somebody's car, you don't know, mm-hmm. you know, like this is the kind of thing that people, I'm glad, I'm glad that Steven did that. So the show ended up being nominated for four in Emmys. But unfortunately, before the Emmys, I think it was like the night before the Emmys, September 16th, 1989, Stephen was on his way home from work and he was riding his motorcycle when a car pulled out in front of him and hit and killed him on impact. No. Um, his sister was on her way to work and saw the scene after the crash, but what? didn't realize at the time that it was her brother. And when I was researching, Stephen had kids. two, oh. and they were very young. Um, I just got chills, Alyssa. Yeah, when I was researching, you have gone through all that. Well, that's what I was about to say. I was researching all this, reading his story, watching the documentary, and when I was watching it in the beginning, they were like looking at pictures of Stephen, like Stephen Junior and Ashley. They were like they're in the documentary, they're older, and they're talking about oh. him, and I was like. They act like they don't know him. I was confused. I was like, please don't tell me he's like some deadbeat dad. Right. And then in the show, it says that he gets in a hit and run and dies. And I just got chills. Like, How I was so old upset. Was he? he was 24. Golly. Oh, and he overcame all that. Don't yeah. Ride, y'all don't ride motorcycles. Just don't do it, you know? Well, motorcycles scare me too. Me dead. too. I don't like them getting in front of me. I don't like them behind me. I do not want to kill somebody on a motorcycle. It's scary for so real. So terrifying. Don't do it. But, like, he escapes this pedophile, saves another child's life. Yeah. Gets to go back to his family after seven whole years. He's able to meet Jody, and he has two beautiful children who He's he loves. He's advocating for other kids. And he dies because a freaking idiot pulls out in front of him and he leaves him there. He hits him oh and God. leaves. Oh, that is horrible. Steven's family was only able to have him for 10 more years after he came home. Oh they thought gosh. once they had him, they had because him for you good. Thank everybody, all your people. You think they're going to live forever. I just can't imagine losing him again so soon. Like, how can, like, that's just horrible. His daughter, Ashley, wasn't even four years old when he died. And after Stephen died, Jody did try to move on. And the kids didn't really grow up hearing stories or knowing too much about their dad. Mm -hmm. Which is what answered my question about, like, why did they act like they didn't know anything, you know? Yeah. Um, Jody ended up meeting a man that was, like, really mean and controlling. And he kept them away from the Stainer family because he didn't like any of them, apparently. Yeah. That sucks. And on the rare occasion that they were able to see Kay and Dale, he supervised their visits what? extremely close. Excuse oh, me? Oh, yeah. What the heck? Steven's kids didn't even know Steven's entire story until they saw the show when they were about preteen, young teens. Golly. And they said that seeing the movie made them upset knowing what their dad had to go through, especially at such a young age. And it just kind of like turned their stomach, which honestly, I don't blame them. You know, that's horrible to think about your dad having to go through that from seven years old to 14 years old. You may think that after Steven's death, this is kind of where that story ends, you know. Right, for sure. But, boy, do I have news for you. We have about another good old 30, 45 minutes of talking to do here because probably longer than that. Um. Oh, 10 years after Stephen's death, 
it gets pretty interesting, you could say. Um, February 15th of 1999, three women went missing in Yosemite National Park. Mm-hmm. The victims were 42-year-old Carol Sund, the 15-year-old daughter, Julie Sund, and Julie's friend, 16-year-old daughter, daughter well, excuse me, mm-hmm. and Julie's friend, 16-year-old Sylvina Peloso, and they were seen that night eating supper at the Cedar Lodge, which they were staying at. Police were kind of baffled at the beginning and had no solid leads to begin with. They just kind of disappeared. Um, the three were actually vacationing there, and this was the end of their trip. Silvina was actually spending winter break with the sons and visiting from Argentina. Carol was friends with Silvina's mom, and they wanted to make her trip kind of fun and memorable, so they decided to do like a little road trip. They went to Disneyland, San Francisco, and then were ending their trip by visiting Yosemite National Park. Um, people of Merced, like I said, Merced was, like, right outside of Yosemite. Yeah, like, Mm -hmm. the entrance to Yosemite. And so, people called it, like, the gateway. And all the people of Merced were very invested and concerned in the missing women's, you know, disappearance. They were wondering, like, how, like, how could this happen? This was a huge deal. People had hoped that the trio had just gotten lost on accident while they were hiking and they were safe. Um, and news outlets were reporting, like, every single detail. It just captured the news. Yeah. It was the story. So, this was, like, the first big disappearance in Yosemite, I guess. Oh, yeah. The National Park, I think. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I guess the first disappearance near Merced since Stephen. Yeah. March 18th of 1999, a month after their disappearance, a man was, I guess, walking, hunting, doing something in a secluded area and found a burnt-up red Pontiac. A whole car? Mm Mm-hmm. March 19th, the next day, investigators get to the scene to check it out and identify it as Carol's rental car. They opened the trunk of the vehicle and found two bodies Mm -hmm. that were burned beyond recognition. They later identified with dental records as Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso. When their bodies were recovered, people wanted answers on who did this, and they wanted it ASAP. Like, people were very demanding. We have to be able to go to the park and feel safe. Exactly. We should be able to go everywhere and feel safe. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And they also thought that maybe Julie was still alive, so they wanted people to get on it. Like, she's still missing. They haven't found her body. They haven't found nothing. Like, find... The killers and find her, hopefully. Right. Well, March 25th, police received an anonymous letter that had a hand-drawn map telling police where Julie's body was. And had a note saying, we had fun with this one. What? So, in Sydney, there were at least two perps. They find her body in another isolated area about 30 miles away from the car and her throat had been slashed. She was found wrapped in a pink blanket from Cedar Lodge. She had been missing for about six weeks. Police started rounding up some guys that were fugitives and parolees in the area. And guys that had been to prison for rape and murder. Later on, I'll talk about that. They found Carol's wallet, I think, in one of one area 
And that's why they started running up all these guys because they thought it had something to do with it. I see. Um, The FBI has a couple of people in custody who they were certain were responsible for the crimes. They tell the Sun family they it was these guys, and later on, the they believed it was these guys. Yeah. Um, and they go and tell public like Yosemite's safe. Go out, enjoy the park. It's Mm. fine. Well, July 22nd, 1999, the decapitated body of 26-year-old naturalist Joey Armstrong was found in Yosemite. It was behind her cabin, in, or she was behind her cabin in a stream. Mm. Luckily, this time, someone had seen a car in the area, and it was a 1972 Powder Blue International Scout. Do you know what that is? I would love to see a picture of that car. Power uh, blue. This is what I Wee. would consider. It's like a. It looks like a Jeep to me. I would think a powder blue car. There's a woman driving that powder blue car. For sure. Well, when you see it, you're saying no. It's like a surf uh, car. I feel like oh, people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was probably in the movie. Will always talks about it, but I can't remember the name of it. With uh, Patrick Swayze. Dirty Dancing? No, no, no. no. It's, it's older. <laughs> I think it's older. I don't really know. Also, um, he drives like an actual car in that. Mm-mm. No, no, no. Anyways. Okay. That's so, nice visual. I feel like it mm-hmm. kind of tells me what kind of person this is. Okay. That's killing these ladies. Maybe. So... People that lived in the area identified that vehicle as none other than Drummond. Please, that was horrible. Sorry, that was interesting. But um, Carrie Stainer, uh-huh. are you surprised? Yeah, you would think somebody would go the other way. But for real, uh, Stephen's older brother Carrie was the one who owned the Jeep like this. Yeah. There aren't many powder... There might have been. What? Uh, no, because this was late 90s. Mm-hmm. There were not a lot of powder blue ones of those left riding around. I wouldn't think so. No, me either. Um, so, Carrie had been working as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge and lived above the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And the initial investigation, FBI actually didn't really think there was any connection. They were just interrogate or interviewing Carrie to see if he had saw anything in the area. Since his car was there. Right. right. But they did eventually end up changing their minds and all their attention went to Carrie Steiner. Mm-hmm. On July 24th, two days later, investigators went to talk to Carrie uh, or wanted to talk to him. So they had to track him down. He had left and he was found at a nudist camp named Laguna del Sol in Wilton, California. Can you imagine walking up on a nudist camp or visiting a nudist camp? Having to arrest a nudist. Gross. Put some clothes on, man. I'm not touching your ass. <laughs> Tell your dress. Literally your ass. Cover your butt. <laughs> okay. Cover them cheekies, please. <laughs> Cover it all. I'm talking about long sleeve shirt. Button it up all the way to the top. Some sweats, maybe. Please. <laughs> Later that wash your hands. <laughs> Most importantly, wash your hands. Okay. Yikes. Later that day, Carrie confesses to Joey's murder and then ends up confessing to Carol, Julie, and Silvina's as well. Silvina's wow. as well. The next day he takes agents out to Joey's cabin and explains in detail what he did and how. 
So, while Kerry was in prison, like, when he first got to prison and was caught, reporter Ted Rollins went to interview him. And I'm going to be mentioning Ted throughout the rest of this because he has a lot of good information because he thought that Kerry wasn't going to have a lawyer yet. So, like, it was super super early on in the investigation. Yeah. And thought he was going to be able to find out, like, more details and, like, not have a lawyer that tells him, like, don't answer that or stuff. Right. That's right. So... A clip of in the Hulu doc is where Ted is sitting there explaining how, like, when he gets to the prison, they don't really allow recording devices in there. Mm-hmm. And so a guard handed him, like, quarter sheets of paper, so really small paper, and a pencil or a pen to jot down words to remind him of what Carrie said. Okay. And Carrie agreed to talk to Ted, but told him his one condition was Ted was to call producers in Los Angeles and make a movie of the week about Carrie's story. Uh, he wanted his own movie, like his brother's miniseries. What a boob. That's what I'm thinking. He murdered people for a miniseries. He had to one-up his brother. Oh, he is a real sick puppy. So, then Ted just agreed. You know, he's like, whatever, I'll do whatever I can. And then Carrie started talking. Mm-hmm. And he told him, yeah, he did murder them. He killed the um, all four of the women. And he was going to keep on killing until he was either caught or killed himself. Uh-uh. Now, I'm going to go back and talk about the murders a little bit more in detail. Um, so, trigger warning. Okay. It's not like super, super detailed. Just a little bit more in detail. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and we're going to start with the three ladies. So, Carol, Julie, and Sylvina had settled into their room at the Cedar Lodge when they heard a knock at the door. And it was Carrie who said that he needed to fix something in the bathroom. Oh, because he worked at the He's Cedar the handyman. Lodge. Yeah. And so, he walked into the bathroom and he later emerges. It doesn't tell me exactly how like right. much time, but right. he reemerges with a gun and told them it was a robbery. And if they listened to him and what he said, no one was going to get hurt. So, he bound them with duct tape, and then he strangled... It doesn't say in order exactly what he did, but he ends up sexually assaulting both girls, and then strangles Carol and strangles Sylvina. And he puts both of their bodies in the trunk of the Pontiac. Mm -hmm. And then he loaded Julie up and drove half an hour away before he slashed her neck and leaving her body there. When Carrie is telling Ted about these first murders, he says that he carried them out so quietly and said that all three women cooperated with him, obeying every single order that he gave them throughout Uh the entire thing. Mm -mm. Ted asked how Carrie felt after the murders, and it was reported that he felt scared, but... Yeah. But, um, and then he also later admits that he had the... He got the idea of writing the letter to police after watching a documentary about the Unabomber. What? Yeah. And he even had someone lick or use someone else's DNA um, to seal the envelope so it wasn't going to be traced back through him. He's a boob. I'm going to say it again. This guy really sucks. And so this is where I was going to tell you where it says... um, the reason police were arresting some of those sketchier folks back in the beginning of the investigation was because Carrie intentionally put Carol's wallet where police found it in a known area of meth use, sex offenders, and other illegal activities yeah. where they like went on uh, next. So that's why they yeah. arrested all those guys. And it later on says that um, Carol's parents were 
really shocked when they came out and said it was Carrie Stainer because, or not Carrie's parents, excuse me. When Carol's parents came out and said that they were shocked it was Carrie because they believed the guys they had in prison were the ones that had done it. Yep. Mm. Next was the murder of Joey Armstrong, who Carrie said was all alone when he saw her and he, quote, couldn't help himself, Uh -uh. end quote. When Carrie approached her, they were kind of chatting, but then he pulled out a gun she fought, but he still got her into his truck. But this chick didn't stop there. Like, she fought. She was a fighter. That's awesome. While she was bound and gagged, she somehow managed to throw herself out of the moving vehicle what? window and escaped. But Carrie chased her down, oh. overpowered her, and slit her throat right then so forcefully that he beheaded her. Oh. <gasps> Oh. Oh. Mm. That's horrible. That's awful. For a miniseries. I know. Sick. Now we will talk about, or now that we have talked about his crimes, let's go back and talk about Carrie. And before all this happened, like, was he normal? How did he act during Stephen's abduction, after his abduction? Like, just what the hell happened to him, you know? Yeah. Right, right, right. So the media liked to refer to him as the other son, but could that really be true? Mm-hmm. Carrie Stainer was only a few years older than Stephen and was 11 when he disappeared, or when Stephen had disappeared. Yeah. Dell says that he thinks Carrie had suffered from some trauma from this is- incident, and when Stephen went missing, Carrie was really upset. He tells reporters... When they were making the miniseries that he remembered wishing on a star every night, hoping his brother would come home when he was younger. That's so sad. They were like, yeah, I know. They were like super close and like he's 11 years old and his brother just disappears. Carrie admitted that he felt neglected also during this time by his parents because Mm -hmm. they were so focused on finding Steven. And he says like, Dale just, he just wanted to bring Stephen home. So he just felt like he wasn't important. Mm -hmm. And I am going to tell y'all what I read in one source as well. That Carrie later also claimed he was sexually assaulted around the same time that Stephen disappeared by someone, either an Uncle Jesse or a Jerry or somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not 100% true or sure if this happened or not, but I'm just throwing it out there that I read this in a source and it, he might have had this happen. He might have said it, it was for attention. This might not have even came out of his mouth. But right. I'm just putting it out there. That's right. We like to hear. In high school, Carrie was said to be creative and calm. Like, he never really had a temper or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but after Stephen returned home, he also was never really able to escape the attention that it brought. And their relationship was never the same. Mm-hmm. He later says, quote, we never really got along. Well, after that, he came back. All of a sudden, Steve was getting all these gifts, getting all this clothes, getting all this attention. I guess I was jealous. I'm Mm. sure I was. I was the oldest and all that. Then all of a sudden, it's gone. I got put on the back burner, you might say, end quote. Dang, that sucks. Yeah. And Dale was also upset that they weren't really getting along and said, 
or accused him of not wanting to be a part of the family. Mm-mm. Yeah. Dale, way to take it to the next level. I know. Mm-hmm. And this is a really sad quote from Carrie. He told a director, he was referring to how his parents loved, he felt like his parents loved Stephen more. He says, quote, I didn't need to be loved that much, but I wondered why I couldn't be loved a little like that, end quote. But on the other side of Carrie was somebody different. Mm-hmm. Um, he wore a hat so often because he compulsively pulled his own hair out. Oh, God bless him. Yeah. That's horrible. Oh, that makes me hurt. Yeah. And he also started acting super inappropriate towards women. And he exposed himself to one of his sister's friends. That is so weird. When people expose themselves. I know. (laughs) That episode of The Office when Phallus gets... Phallus. Phallus. He says Phallus for penis like a phallic. You you don't know what episode... Y'all know what I'm talking about. I don't watch The The listeners, The listeners know what I'm talking about when Phyllis gets splashed in the parking lot. And then... It's really funny. You need to watch that episode. I'm going to find it when I get home and watch it. Because when he calls her Phallus. And he was being so serious. And he was like, Phallus. It's great. Y'all go listen to it for real. But this is not funny. It's just that episode of The Office. I wish I could tell you which one. This is not amused. I'm not impressed. I could not quit giggling. I'm sorry. Go check it out. Flashing, folks. It's weird. Pee Wee Herman did it. You know, yeah, I know. Oh, I Pee-wee know. Pee Wee Herman was my favorite. I also heard happened. he was jacking off in a movie theater. God bless America. I think that's. I think it was him. Uh, like a nudie flick. No, like, <laughs> like a you know, like an like action movie, movie a thriller, a kids movie. <laughs> Pee Wee's his own movie. He looked inappropriate. He's a weird. Anybody that could do that it was weird. But I always liked him until he started pulling his dick out. And that's just not okay. That's there's <laughs> there's never appropriate time never. to sniff crotch <laughs> or to pull your wee wee peener out. Your weenus out. <clears throat> so Ted Rollins says, "quote It seemed as though he had a compulsion with trying to get close to women or be sexual with them." But he was unable to develop any sort of interpersonal relationships with any woman. End quote. The sister, Corey, said he had always been unwell, even as a toddler. She says this in the documentary. Uh. Anyone who had met him would tell you that is what she says. What? Yeah. So, like, not not playing with kids, staring off in the distance? Well, I need an OD. I don't. Okay, hold on. Let's see. I don't know. Documentary, I'll find. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. At one point, he was super young. He had a nervous breakdown, essentially, and apparently tried seeking help, but only received, like, a couple hours of it and, like, was sent home. So, he never really got the help that he needed. That Um, sucks. He liked being alone and isolated. He liked to draw. They said he was really creative, but I think it was because he liked being alone and not having to be working with other people, questioned by other people. Um, He also said that he always had some pretty freaky thoughts. Like, some of his first violent thoughts, he was only seven years old, sitting in his parents' station wagon outside of the grocery store. And he would look in through the window and would look at the cashiers checking people out. 
and would fantasize about tying them up and killing them what? at like seven years old. Ugh. So this is way before Stephen went missing. Yeah. And that's what he keeps saying. He's like, this had nothing to do with Steven. Like, he no, keeps repeating, this has nothing to do with Listen, Steven. dude, you've always had the, Listen, the, dude. the ability to do it, okay? You've always had the whatever inclination. But this pushed him over the edge because of, he wanted the movie. Not a miniseries, excuse me. A movie. Well, and then, of course, Steven dies in 1989, which hit Carrie pretty hard again. Yeah. He never talked about it with anyone. And then Jesse or Jerry or whoever we think That's the right. uncle was That's that was right. the possible child molester dies. And in 1991, Carrie reportedly tried to commit suicide. Oh, so it's like, gunshot, I'm not sure. It doesn't Eels. say. But it's like, bam, bam, bam. Yep. But then, 1997... Carrie was arrested for possession of weed and meth, but the charges were later oh. dropped. And after that is when he lands his job as the maintenance or the handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portal, California. Okay. In 1998, Carrie starts dating a waitress at the restaurant, but I can never find her name. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the restaurant that he lived above for the Cedar Mo- the Lodge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the waitress had a co- two daughters. One was 11, and her name was Lena. I couldn't find the other daughter's name either. Uh, they all adored Carrie, though, and Lena mm-hmm. recalls him being like a big teddy bear. But after his arrest, he later confesses to have originally planned on killing Lena's mom and then raping Lena and her sister on the night of February 15th Stop Stop when it. he killed Carol, Julie, and Silvani. Silvina. Excuse me. Oh my gosh. Um, and then he admitted to wanting to have killed them two more times, including what? going to look for them before he left for the nudist camp, but they were visiting their grandmother's house. So he tried to kill them three times in wow. total. But they That's all thought horrible. that he was some lovable, oh, awesome yeah. guy. Wow. Like he ne- like they had no freaking idea. Golly, that's nuts. I know. That is crazy. Later on, Lena speaks out in an ABC News article and says she loved him and he was such a happy part of their lives that he turned bad. She also says, quote, it's hard for me to think about him being behind bars and I wonder what it's like for him being there because he loved to be outside. He loved Yosemite and in some way it's sad, but I also don't forgive him. I can't. But same way, at same time, I still have a hard time looking at him as a monster, end quote. Right. What? That's a lot of emotions. I know. But what Carrie did tainted the Stainer name, which affected Stephen's legacy in a sense. Um, They talk about in the, you know, documentary how anytime you talk or hear about Stephen Stainer, like even today, you hear about Carrie. Yep. Like even today I'm doing it. Yep. Um, And I'm not necessarily saying what Carrie did outweighs what Stephen did or makes what Stephen did any less good. It all it's all messy. It's insane. Yeah. It just really upset his family and his kids because after Carrie's arrest, um, the children were always picked on and they were questioned at school and even though they never really knew Carrie, they 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 were just harassed. People wanted to know. Yeah. That voice you're about to do doing. I don't know. It was a little scary. I thought he, I've been watching Stranger Things. Nice. We finished it in like like that. Oh, I'm season. starting season one. Like I've never watched it. Stop. You're going to love it. I know. I'm hooked. So many twists and turns. Wait till the last. Ooh. This, okay. this season's okay. the best. No spoilers. 
No spoilers. But anyways, um, and Ashley said in the documentary how great it was that Steven did, but here Carrie is trying to do something bigger and worse. It got to the point in their lives that they didn't even want to talk about their dad because someone would bring up Carrie and his crimes. Mm. Also, after his arrest, he sent a letter to the media saying there had been too much attention placed on him and said it was unnerving how the media was trying to get the how and the why. He also admits that he was disgusted when his brother's movie came out and wished it had never been made, which was in response to claims he was just wanting attention. Now, the actor who plays Carrie in the 1989 miniseries, Todd Eric Andrews, says this in the documentary, quote, It was his brother's story. It was not his story, and it fucked up his life, and he's angry about it, end quote. Mm-hmm. Dang. And honestly, I can't say I disagree because it sure well, sounds like right. that. Right. Yeah. Um, Carrie Stainer pled guilty to Joey Armstrong's murder in September of 2000. He was sentenced to life without parole. Nice. In July of 2002, his trial for the murders of Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso began. His attorney said he was psychotic, like, Hmm. Sir, obviously, that's very obvious, but that doesn't mean he yeah, didn't know what was going right. on or that he shouldn't be punished for right. it. Right. And six mental health experts testified that he had brain damage that could have caused his mental breakdown and this crazy behavior. How did he have brain damage? What you reckon? It doesn't necessarily say it. I never could find that. But, hmm. um. Who knows? There's no telling. There's no telling. They. <laughs> Sorry. They also brought up in court that the Stainer family tree was full of mental illnesses, oh. alcoholism, and sexual abuse, apparently. Oh, God bless America. And their next thing was trying to claim that he was insane during the first three murders. Mm-hmm. He was found sane, though, and found but. guilty of murder with set special circumstances that made him eligible for the death penalty. In 2002, Carrie Stanner was sentenced to death, and as of today, he is still sitting on death row at San Quentin. Of course, she's still in Well, nobody's been put to death in California in so long, so. That's right. Well, keep sitting, hopefully. Oh, yeah. Uh, Now, before we end the episode, I did want to tell you about a few other characters and how they ended up. So, I'm going to talk about Timmy White. Mm -hmm. Um. He was a Los Angeles sheriff's deputy oh, and awesome. married to a woman named Dina. And they had two children, Hannah, who was 13, and Lucas, who was 11. Um, in 2004, Timmy actually testified when Parnell went on trial for trying to buy the child. Nice. Um, unfortunately, though, in 2008, Timmy died at the age of 35 no! from a pulmonary embolism. That is weird. Isn't Alyssa, it? this it? is nuts. Isn't it? They both wow. survived Cornell and they both died. Oh my god! From like random, two completely yeah. different things. That is crazy. Well, I, I almost said out loud before he started reading about Timmy, I hope he lived a long, full life. Oh my gosh. Uh, the same year that Timmy died, later on in the year, there was a statue of Stephen and Timmy dedicated in Applegate park and merced Aww. and in timmy's hometown ukiah i believe there was like a 
big mural or a sketch done of young Stephen holding a young Timmy's oh hand as they were escaping. Um, I just got chills. I know. And I believe Delbert also passed away. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think Delbert died in um, 2013 at 79 years old. What about his mother? Okay, she's still alive. She's in the documentary. So, that is the story of the Stainer brothers. And, like I said, it almost wow. doesn't seem real. Like, that was a how insane yeah. all that happened to one family. It's yeah. very real, and but like I said, very sad. And mm. it's just unfortunate how things unfolded for yeah. most of the family. Like, first, Dale and Kay have their son abducted from them at seven years old. And he's missing for, you know, so he's a seven, but he's also missing for half his life. Yeah. And comes back at 14. But the whole seven years he's missing, you have no idea if he's alive, if he's safe, where he is, like, what's going on. Um, And then he shows back up only to tell you eventually that he was sexually abused the entire time. And he escaped so he could save another boy from the same fate. He was eventually bullied by others at school and had to drop out. And then he finally started to turn his life around when he was killed in a hit and run. And so they lose their son again. And only 10 years later, they lose yet their only other son left because their eldest has literally freaking lost his mind and murdered four women. And then he was sentenced to death. Like, how does all that happen to one family? It's so crazy. I'm looking at pictures of Stephen and Timmy now. Isn't he so Aww. cute? Like, both of them are so Precious. cute. Makes me so sad. And look up Carrie. I'm going to tell you, it's very unfortunate he's a serial killer because he is, I am. He's the, good looking? He, I mean, he's a handsome fellow, which is why I think he was able to <sighs> do what he did to these four women. Like, yeah. when he was arrested, not now. He's kind of fat now. But, like. I mean, he's not a bad looking No, fella. he's got the sweetest face. <laughs> nice smile. No, he's not a bad... Oh, look at that. But that's <laughs> creepy. Like, he looks like... Yeah, he looks scary. Oh, my gosh. He kind of looks like somebody I know. That's weird. I got to show Will this pic. Okay. Nuts. But that is the Stainer case. And now I'm going to tell you my sources. Tell of me. course, we did Wikipedia, and I did go through two different ABC News articles. I looked up the History Channel article. I went through StrangeOutdoors.com. There's a True Crime in the Outdoors article about um, Joey Armstrong. GoodHousekeeping.com. Um, and like I said, the Hulu documentary, I got a ton of information yeah. from. So, there we have it. Wow. Well, it was a good one. Bananas. Twisty, turny, crazy. For real. Well, I hope whoever of the stainers that are alive are going to live good, long, happy lives. I know. Bless their hearts. That was that's great. intense. Yeah. That was really great. But um, thank you all for listening so much. We love you all. We do love you. We love our listeners. And I just really do want to take the time to tell y'all how appreciative we are of everybody that listens. Um, whether you've listened since the beginning or you're just getting caught up if you haven't listened to all of our episodes or even if you have, we just thank you 
for all the time you take to hang out with us. Yeah, like it really, we put a lot of effort into it and we really love doing it. Yep. And we want to keep doing it. And so we want you to spread the word. We want to tell everyone about it. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our um, right review, subscribe yes. to the pod, number one. Number two, we would like you to also start interacting with some of our different social media accounts. We have a ton of people from different countries, and I want to know who you are, and we would love to see where you are. So just, we would like you to follow the Instagram. At Ill Natured Pod. Go join our Facebook group. Ill Natured Podcast. Uh, Follow us on Twitter. At Ill Natured Pod. And we have a TikTok. We just made a TikTok today that I'm going to post later on. It's, it's really goofy. goofy. Ill Natured Pod. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And email us. We would like case suggestions because yes. we want to put out cases that you're interested in because That's we right. want to draw you in. We are here for your entertainment. So email us case suggestions. Ill Natured Pod at yahoo.com. Yes. And if you don't want to email us, you can also at least Facebook message us yes, or let's see comment. You email people. Let's keep it alive. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Alive. We want to keep email. Okay. Okay. Uh, Alyssa really wants to get an email. It's going to be so exciting. Just spit. It's going to be so exciting when you get your first email. I know. And you're getting shouted out from the rooftops. Yes. We're going to blast your address and all. I'm no, just we're kidding. not. No, we're not. <laughs> So, but for real, thank you all for listening. Um, and spread our podcast like wildflower. We yes, really do appreciate it. Yes, you we know do. what I mean? What I mean? We'll see you back next week. Always on place. Tuesdays. Always on Tuesdays at midnight. Bright and early in this morning. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Alyssa, you're so goofy. No, I can't help it. Okay, so... Uh, We love you guys, and we will see you guys on the flip side. Peace.